0: Hi there, my name is Terry Ibell and welcome to the Animation Industry Podcast. This chat includes a little bit of a history lesson about the origins of modern day stop motion. If you're a stop motion enthusiast, you may be familiar with The Puppetoons, which are some of the first stop motion productions in commercial and narrative film dating back to the 30s and 40s. The Puppetoons were originally created by George Powell, who is also known for his later influential work in science fiction film, including films like War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. So, in this episode, I'm chatting with Arnie Labovit, who is the leading authority on George Powell and his work on the Puppetoons. In our chat, he gives an amazingly insightful history lesson about how George created the Puppetoons and brought them to the big screen. And if you haven't seen a Puppetoon yet, please go Google them right now. It will boggle your mind how amazingly meticulously they are crafted and executed. In fact, some of the Puppetoons remain my favorite stop motions of all time, including the one called Tubby the Tuva. So make sure you look that one up especially. Now, the reason I'm chatting with Arnie about all this today is because of his upcoming release of the Puppetoons movie Volume 2, which you can pre-order right now, and which is a compilation of many of George Powell's productions, including some films which haven't been seen since they were originally in cinemas in the 1940s. So he's gonna chat all about the lengths he had to go to to compile this film. And besides having a huge love for toys, animation, and the Puppetoon movies, Arnie is a producer himself, starting out first as a film editor in New York, and then later moving to LA. Some of his notable works include the films Penny Lane, Rascal Dazzle, and the 2002 remake of The Time Machine. Now, let's jump into the chat. Hello, Arnie, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the chat. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. Great yeah, to see
0: I'm I'm doing good too. What's What's keeping you entertained during quarantine these days?
1: Uh, I'm thinking about you in the Great White North. I'm thinking about what <laughs> yeah. it's like. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking would it be nice. Maybe I should be in the Great White North, out of the Great White South. Or the, i that's probably what it is.
0: Well, I'm in Toronto, so it's it's pretty south of the Great White North. It's not. I mean, it's it's quite beautiful, right? It's summer right now. So, but uh, you know, winter's approaching soon enough but let's talk more about the puppet tunes and george powell because that's what we're here to do so um you know there there are really three main things that i want to cover today it's kind of the the rich history of puppet tunes and stop motion where that started and and how george powell kind of created that and then moving on to ha- your connection to george powell and then talking about the puppet tunes and you know you've you've already put out one volume and now you're working on the second i want to talk about how you're producing that so let's Let's jump into George Powell, but first, um, what exactly is a puppet tune for somebody who doesn't know what that is? It sounds like kind of a funny word.
1: Well, uh, George came up with the idea of, uh, it's a contraction of the word puppet and cartoon. <laughs> I mean, basically, basically so puppet tune. He's, that was sort of the idea and, um, uh, was sort of his original idea, original concept. And, uh, And what is a puppetoon? Well, uh, a puppetoon is a stop motion animated uh, short subject that was made from the 1930s to the late 1940s by Powell. And um, he created a a very interesting technique, something that he did. And there's a story behind it. I can go through the history of that if people are interested. But um, the idea was he he created thousands of uh, hand. Uh, puppets uh, that were uh, some were carved and some were lathed in machines, and uh, each puppet was replaced for every frame of film. Uh, it's sort of an astonishing concept that today we would think is, you know, almost impossible to imagine. But at that time, they didn't have the technology we had today, so literally thousands of these wood puppets would be created. And uh, every frame, they would be replaced with a different head, a leg, a body part. And uh, there were 15,000 frames of film and uh, maybe anywhere from uh, uh, three to 5,000 puppets in the early days. So
0: so back in the early days of animation, uh, George Powell created this technique, which essentially is kind of what Laika and other studios are doing today with 3D printing, where they're replacing the faces in stop motion but at the time i guess there was there was nothing like this around so he he essentially invented the technique where to make a puppet walk he created i don't know like 50 maybe well maybe not for a simple walk cycle maybe like 20 different individually carved puppets that all look the same just with their legs and arms swinging and then replace them and then that was that was stop motion back then
1: (laughs) That was the way it was done. It was, uh, well, he was, uh, George, um, uh, really, I get the way the story goes. Um, and I should backtrack a little bit.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, first of all, George was, George was born in 1908, um, in Selgrid, Hungary, and he was born to an actor's family. And, uh, uh, as he got older, he went to eventually went, you know, he was always, always very keen on technical things uh, very, uh, interested in, um, uh, hands-on craft. He actually wanted to be an architect and he studied to be an architect at the, uh, Budapest Academy of Arts. Um, but uh, there was a bit of a slump going on at the time in, uh, in Hungary. And, uh, there was no, uh, as he said, there was nothing to build. So, uh, he, uh, became a, um, a cartoonist. Uh, He did uh, animated drawings uh, for news articles and for publications and eventually led into animation. He had a very interest, he was very interested in animation. He he used to watch Oswald the Rabbit and Felix the Cat cartoons uh, in movie theaters. Uh, This was back in the 1920s. And uh, he had a really keen interest in it and he was a bit self taught in the way that he did it. He had a little advice from a, from a couple of people, but he really just learned it on, you know, basically by doing. He was very, um, very smart in that respect. And um, so by the time he was uh, about, you know, in his 20s, he was about 20, 21 years old. He was in a studio in Hungary, uh, Hunia Studios. And eventually he went to Germany and became the head of the animation. Film department of, of the UFA studio in Germany, which was the largest film studio in Europe at the time, and he was the became the head of the animation department. He was only 21 years old, uh, so he, he was obviously a prodigy. Um, and uh, the way the story goes, he said um, he was drawing most of the most of the work they did was hand drawn animation, cell animation. And the way George described it, he said he was so bored uh, doing drawings that uh, uh, it just happened about that time he was playing around with three-dimensional objects, in this case, uh, cigarettes. Uh, he was doing a commercial for the Oberstultz, uh company in Germany. And he was animating cigarettes, but he's like he said, he was so bored drawing cigarettes, he talked, called the sponsor and he said, what do you think if I use your own cigarettes? Uh, we'll put the trademark on every cigarette. You'll see it on every frame. And uh, the, a, a commercial sponsor loved it. And so he started to animate cigarettes to music. And they, he had the marching and various things. He was very famous for marching, things that march. And he, um, eventually he put heads on them, the cigarettes, uh, mouths so they could talk, legs so they could walk. Uh, basically put the flat cartoon into three dimension. And that was his really big idea for this.
0: I think it's hilarious that the head animator of the biggest studio got bored animating. And then then instead of creating wire armatures, potentially, for these cigarettes, he instead went to carving thousands of replacement parts for these cigarettes. (laughs) So, okay. So, so this is quite interesting because, you know, while Disney and Fleischer are battling it out, there's, there's George Powell creating this unique technique in Europe. How did, how did he go from cigarettes to creating? Cause he's got hours and hours of footage for cartoons that have been shown, you know, in theaters around the world at the time, and now you're compiling them. So how did he go from creating cigarettes to, you know, narrative storytelling and creating cartoons and such?
1: Well, at that time, uh, the only opportunity that he had for doing this sort of thing was commercials. And I would say that George is probably responsible for the television commercials that we've seen since the time we've grown up. I certainly, for me, since their radio went to television in 1940s to 1950s, many commercials use stop motion animation. Uh, in fact, it's a technique that's still used today where commercials sell things using characters. You'll see you know, over the years, there was the Pillsbury Doughboy, or there was Mr. Peanut, or there was um, Speedy Alka-Seltzer. Well, George basically invented that idea. He came up with the first use of stop motion animation for commercials. And it was the commercials that he made in Europe that really launched him. And the sponsors loved his commercials. And George, being George, because he was schooled in literature and in uh, fairy tales and well-known Literature uh, figures. He wanted to do narrative. He wanted to make them more expansive. So he started to take his commercials and turn them into story films. They started out just commercials and then he expanded them into these longer story films. And they were shown in movie theaters just like commercials. But instead of the commercial being, say, a minute, they were story films before the movies. They were lasting anywhere from three, four, five, six minutes long. And eventually they expanded to become more like short subjects. But the reason they were, they were were very well accepted because they were so amazing. They were so entertaining. And the Phillips company is the company that really he did that for in, um, in Eindhoven, Holland. And it was the Phillips company that, that helped finance a lot of those, um, those commercials. So and they were, they they were be- still
0: commercial work, like they were selling a, a product over the course of six minutes. in narrative. That's right. And,
1: and, right. And, and it was very subtly done, as you'll see in uh, the Puppetoon movie, Puppetoon movie two. You know, you'll have a whole story and you'll have one little moment. Maybe it'll talk about a radio or you'll see uh, Philips was selling radios and radio tubes for radios. And you'll see the Philips symbol. But it's only for a moment. It's like he created a story around the concept of radio and sound and uh, broadcasting, and he kind of molded these stories around that idea, but the, the they were really still stories, and they, the commercial plug became a very tiny part of the commercial, almost like a tag, almost, And they and they just let George do that. I mean, they were so well-received, George became known as the Walt Disney of Europe, because of what he was doing and of course walt disney became very aware of george as a result but uh but that's how it basically happened uh, doing these uh story films and um and eventually it got the attention of uh, paramount in the united states and that's that's where the the story begins for us in this country
0: so then so then he moved to the u.s and started a completely like, a, a, I guess, a, a woodworking shop.
1: <laughs> he started a whole nother studio. I mean, George had actually, it's a kind of remarkable. He had been, he had already done two studios. He had been at Ufa, and then he was in Holland for at least uh, eight years or so doing, uh, doing animation. He set up the first animation film uh, studio in Europe, uh, hiring 70 to 100 animators. Uh, and that lasted for the, a number of years, but of course the thing I didn't mention was that the the uh, the Third Reich was was growing, and uh, and uh, George had a history of staying one step ahead of Hitler, even in Germany. Uh, he was being investigated, and in Germany when when uh, he, he went to Holland, of course it took a while for the German regime to to become and become the horror that it became, but. Uh, Eventually, they invaded Holland, and George left by some miracle. He knew, him and Mrs. Powell sort of knew that something was coming, and uh, they left for the United States. They'd always wanted to live in America, and uh, two months later, the Nazis invaded Holland, and uh, he came to America. So, I wanted to say that it was really because of, of World War II. That sort of pushed him out because he had a pretty, pretty good sixth sense of what was happening. Fair, yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. And then he came to, uh, he bought, you know, he was toying with New York. He went to New York. He had lectures. He did at Columbia University. Uh, he went to Hollywood. His films were shown at the World's Fair. There's a, a famous a Phillips broadcast in 1938 was a hit at the San Francisco World's Fair at that time in 1938. And that got the attention of a lot of the Disney animators, and certainly Walt Disney. And, uh, and some of the Disney animators that saw it ended up working for George, and they also worked for Disney. And, um, but Paramount became mostly interested, and they offered him a deal to make Paramount's at Paramount. And that is the main body of his work, some of the great, greatest of the puppetoons, uh, although the early ones are pretty amazing. But the ones that people seem to know in this country more are the American puppetoons, which came out during the time of the Fleischer, Superman cartoons, the Popeye cartoons, the Betty Boop cartoons, Little Lulu, all that during that period. Some of them were paramount. Um, that's, that's the time, that's, that's where people really fell in love with the puppet tunes
0: so so he so can you give me some of the highlights of the puppet tunes he created during this era because from my understanding they were kind of there there weren't really reoccurring series of characters they were more you know independent narratives one-offs kind of stories type of thing so can you give me some highlights of some of the shorts he created
1: well he, he was trying to he was trying to hit on a character obviously he was trying to hit on um a character that he could uh sell to the public um the first character he did was called Jim Dandy. Now, in the Puppetoon movie Volume Two, uh, Jim Dandy is featured in um, Dipsy Gypsy. And uh, when we eventually do Volume Three, it'll be in Western Days. But Jim Dandy was the was his star character, and it's a great character. And he's in. Uh, he did several of those. Uh, he also did uh, Punch and Judy. Uh, Punch and Judy uh, characters uh, were actually designed by Fred Moore, who was the great Disney animator. Uh, And uh, Fred, of course, uh, some of your audience may or may not know, Fred Moore was the animator that created the Seven Dwarfs in Snow White for Disney, Uh, the original look of Mickey Mouse in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And many, many, he's, he's, he's known as one of the greatest of the character animators at Disney. And he created Punchy and Judy and he did a couple of those, George did, uh, and then he did, um, he had a, uh, several subjects with a character named Rusty, a little boy, uh, and uh, you'll see again in, the, in this next release, what hasn't been seen before is the Rusty character, uh, more of Jim Dandy, and uh, Punchy and Judy, so subjects that people haven't seen in 90 years, basically, yeah. are going to be seen. Uh, and also, it should be said that these are, you know, they're being re- they were restored from the original successive negatives. That is another aspect of it, where we were had access to Paramount Pictures for the first time in history to be able to get to be able to do some of these to be able to see them so, and white. So to- yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. So, in total, how many Puppetoon original shorts did he create?
1: Uh, he did about. Um, All told, I mean, between Europe and the United States, I've counted uh, probably close to 60 or 70, but he actually did more than that. He did uh, between, uh, in the United States, he did about 45, over there he did about 20 to 30, over 30, but he also did a lot of subjects we don't have, uh, we haven't found. He did a lot of animated cartoons, he did a lot of stop motion, not a lot of... uh, things that he did have not been unearthed. I think the war had a lot to do with it, and uh, we've been able to unearth an amazing number of them uh, with the help of many archives, but by, by and large, uh, the, um, I would say if, you were, if I were to put a number on it, it's very likely that he could have done close to 100 uh, subjects.
0: Oh, wow. That's, that's quite incredible, considering how long it takes each one. Can you, t- can you take me through, so at the peak where he was working at Paramount, how big was his studio? Like How many people were working there? Um.
1: <laughs> well, he, uh, it was a very diverse uh, uh, group of people, but he, the, the, I would say it was about the same number that he had in Europe. Um, uh, it was a good lot of people. Uh, he had 70 in Europe. He probably had his, at least that many in the United States. A lot of them came over from Europe. A lot of the woodworkers and doll makers that George used in Europe came over. Uh, George had invited them to come over. And as Duke Goldstone, one of the directors and supervisors at the studio that was a friend of mine for many years before he passed away, told me that uh, there were many accents spoken there. People from all over the world worked at the Puppetoon Studios. Uh, uh, George was... um, a, a uh, an employer of all all uh, groups of people um uh different countries different uh creeds yeah uh, you, you mentioned to me before
0: that ray harryhausen and willis o'brien and and a few others were kind of got their start there uh
1: not so much willis cuz uh willis o'brien had did uh, king kong in 1933 uh but ray uh, who? I mean, Willis worked at the Puppetoon Studios. He was there. It was Ray Harryhausen, of course, uh, was young, a lot younger than Willis, and he got his first job uh, working on the Puppetoons. George basically hired a young animator, Ray Harryhausen, and that was his first job in Hollywood, doing Puppetoons. And uh, in the in the in this release we were coming out, and in Puppetoon movie as well a number of the puppetoons were animated. He was one of the animators on, a, I'd say a good half dozen or more puppetoons, tunes. And, um, and so he's very well known for that contribution. Um, and uh, so you have some, yeah, you, know, you do have some really key people. Uh, there was nobody else doing this. I mean, George was doing something when he came to Hollywood, the animators, one of the, one of the things that I've learned is that George was uh, he was no threat to the animators because everyone was doing flat animation. And here George is doing this whole new thing with three-dimensional animation. And it was a, it was a revelation for people. And you uh, can imagine, uh, you know, in the, certainly in Europe, but in this country, this is 1939, say, The Wizard of Oz period, you know, 1940, you had a lot of black and white films and all of a sudden a puppet tune comes on you know and it, for the audiences that saw it in 1940 they were astounded by a puppetoon they'd never seen three-dimensional figures move before and when you see them they, it's it's quite extraordinary how beautiful they are and well, yeah uh, you've
0: been watching them now i'm still astounded I, like just looking at it you can tell that there's thousands of hours behind Crafting these individual puppets, and the accuracy is quite insane i don't I don't know how they did it. I'm assuming they're all you know so you know a couple inches tall and handcrafted and hand painted. I'm wondering if you can take me kind of do you, do you know the background of kind of how the process went from you know from nothing to creating a full puppetoon movie, like how many people well, as, are much as
1: as much as I can you know construct. Yeah, uh, and as much as I've been, I've learned from you know knowing Ray Harryhausen for many years, and Bob Baker who worked at the Puppetoon Studios, and a whole host of people that I met while they were alive. Uh, as it's described, the Puppetoon is was basically pre-drawn and pre-constructed. What George basically did, he did in his head. He did something quite remarkable. Uh, every frame of film was constructed in George's head. He designed the entire film from beginning to end, and he made these elaborate director's sheets. And on the director's sheets, he would have every move of the puppet, every head move, every eye blink, every smile, everything was was drawn on director's sheets frame by frame by frame by frame. So you would have uh, hundreds of these sheets, and each sheet would be followed almost by the numbers by the animator. So they could follow George's pre-design to animate. It so was, he'd
0: say, I don't know, frame 20, replace arm, left arm with number three arm or something. That's like right.
1: That. That's exactly right. I mean, it is is—it is quite extraordinary. It's, it's, I think it's insane. And it is a bit of a genius to be able to do that, to be able to, to make that kind of an elaborate, organized, uh, construction of the concept. And the animators, of course, I uh, don't, Gene Warren, uh, Gene Warren, uh, uh, who animated, uh, for George and later did the time machine and Tom Thumb and many of his features, which we can talk about afterwards later on here, um, uh, remarked to me that he couldn't believe it, that he couldn't believe the, the amount of work that George had put into these these, these designs and these these boards that they would follow. Yeah. They never see anything like it before. Uh, so that that was that was a big uh, big contribution that he made. And that idea of having it all laid out. And Phil Kellison, who was an animator at Coast Special Effects, who he did a lot of the uh, Pillsbury Doughboys and P.D. Alka Seltzers. He animated a lot of those in the fifties and sixties. And uh, He told me the idea for George was basically he'd get somebody who really had no experience as an animator. uh, Say a young kid, you know, and he had a young, a lot of young animators who maybe didn't know much about animation and they could follow his director's sheets and animate. (laughs) Basically. So you you
0: didn't need any training. You you just pull somebody off off the street and say, follow these numbers and then you have a feature film.
1: (laughs) Then you have a movie. I mean, how how unbelievable is that?
0: It's pretty crazy. Um,
1: it's a little crazy. So uh, I'm, I'm
0: curious. To be, able
1: to, to be able to devise it in your mind. Yeah. And when you see the films, of course, they have a tremendous amount of humor and subtlety. And there's a, a style, very stylish, particularly the early ones in Europe. They have a wonderful style and movement and fluidity to them and characterization to them that, It's hard. It's remarkable, really, that all that mind went right into the carving of those individual heads and body parts. You know, it's it's really quite extraordinary. And it wasn't easy, by the way, for the craftsmen. The craftsmen were not just it was hard. I mean, I've read a lot of the stories of some of the original uh, animators that worked for George. And I mean, they said there sometimes they wanted to throw you know, throw something at the wall, you know, or, or, you know, because it was so difficult to do. It yeah. wasn't easy to do.
0: Well, Was uh, he pretty strict on how exact things had to be because they, the minute differences could change a whole scene or how it a puppet... could.
1: It could. Plus he was inventing it as he was doing it. And, uh, but knowing George, as I met him and knew him later uh, briefly and Mrs. Powell for many years, George had a wonderful personality. He had a, a wonderful, sweet, uh, easygoing quality. He had a wonderful, uh, humorous quality to him. Um, he, he always laughed. Uh, he, he, he let things slide off. You know, he had, just, he had just a wonderful way about him. I mean, to be able to do what he did, his personality is what really pushed through a great deal. And, and everyone loved him. So while it must have been difficult, George would have had a way of smoothing it over in such a way so they didn't feel so bad. And, and, um, and plus, he could do it himself. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like Walt Disney, who certainly had great talent, but he didn't do all the animation. He had a lot of people working for him. George did everything himself. He could do the animation, the direction, the producing, the storyboards. He drew. He was an artist. He could do everything. He, was a, he could do any aspect of the film so I think they respected him much more because if they had a problem he could go in and actually fix it himself he could make do the actual work yeah so that made a difference
0: yeah I think uh, I, I mean if somebody's listening they haven't seen the puppetoons tunes uh, something you said really stuck out to me was how stylized things are because that's always I mean I saw them as a kid and and have watched them kind of over the years as they come up and something that always stuck out to me is how fluid he makes wood seem like there's so much squash and stretch and manipulation of volume that you wouldn't expect one there's one scene i can't think of which one it's from but it's some trumpeters playing trumpet and the trumpets when they you know they're they're just wood but when they blow the trumpet it stretches out and then it comes back to their face and squashes in and uh the the smoothness is incredible um so i mean people these days would use 3d printers but he was having a, a labor force individually carve wooden blocks to achieve this, it's crazy. So, it but crazy. that, that let, let, makes me wonder, you know, he's got a whole team of doing like, uh, there's a whole workshop doing kind of heavy heavy labor at some points, how, how profitable were these things? Or where's he generating the revenue from? Was Paramount, so you said they were seeing in theaters. So were people paying to go see Puppet Tunes Themselves, or were they part of like a collaboration of different some Fleischer tunes and Disney tunes, or wh- where it was, was the money like cartoons,
1: from? just like Disney uh, cartoons, like Mickey Mouse cartoons or Popeye? They were they were. Remember, this was the nineteen thirties and forties when you went to a movie theater, you saw you saw a cartoon, you saw a short subject. They had a newsreel, Pathé News. Uh, you saw the news of the day it was like a TV broadcast. You'd see the news, you'd see a cartoon. There'd be uh, uh, promotional things they would do in a theater. So it would be part of the package. Gotcha. And that was part of what the uh, studios financed. The fi- they, they financed an entertaining program when you went to a theater. And the puppetoon was one of many uh, short subjects that were created. There were many short subjects that were made, thousands and thousands of them of all sorts, not just uh, animation, but live action as well. If you watch TCM, you can see a lot of them. They They show quite a few of them on TCM uh, from MGM. So the financing, I know uh, today it would be quite difficult. Uh, The cost of a puppet tune at that time started in the range of maybe $25,000 in 1940.
0: Is that 1940s money or today's
1: money? 1940s money. Uh, Eventually they they probably moved up to uh, close to 30 or 40, uh, or more thousand dollars as time went on. Obviously, uh, today to do a puppetoon, uh, based on my own experience, which I I didn't have to pay the giant budgets because I had so many con- contributors. But if you yeah. were to do like a Gumby that was in the puppetoon movie, that sequence that I had, it's uh, many hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: Yeah, to do- I I just looked up an inflation calculator. So twenty, it says twenty five thousand dollars in nineteen forty. U.S. dollars is today worth forty four hundred and sixty-two thousand six hundred and eighty dollars and thirty-six cents. So, so how? So, say the average one was how long was the average one? Like maybe t- uh,
1: anywhere from the, the original puppetoons in Europe, because those were sponsored uh, finance. But the puppetoons in America were r- roughly about eight minute, seven okay. eight minute subjects, uh, and uh, that's that's what they they took about six to six to eight months to do. Uh, there yeah. would be, uh, as they said, there'd be 15,000 frames of film, a one frame shot at a time. And remember, this was the time of Technicolor. Yeah. George, of course, shot these in Technicolor. After Disney, Disney uh, uh, Walt had the, had the rights to Technicolor originally, so he had the exclusive. And then that moved on, and George was able to use Technicolor in America, but he was actually doing it in Europe with a process called Gasper Color, which was the forerunner of Technicolor. So he was doing Technicolor cartoons in Europe the same time that Disney was doing Snow White in the America. So he was doing it well ahead of time. Gasper Color was the forerunner of Technicolor. But in any case, what is Technicolor? Well, it's three frames of film. And a lot of your uh, listeners might know from maybe uh, some of the feature films, like uh, say I'm using The Wizard of Oz as an example, uh, they had these huge cameras, huge body cameras, and there would be three strips of film running simultaneously in that camera. And one would be a red strip, there would be a blue strip, there would be a green strip, and that's somewhat how it was done. Uh, a lot of it was done with black and white uh, strips of film that would then dye. They put dye on those uh, films. So they changed over the years, but. What George did is he did a three-strip process when he did Technicolor. So to complicate things even more, you're shooting, uh, let's say you're shooting 15,000 frames for a six-minute subject. Each frame is replaced one frame at a time with a different puppet. Technicolor required a tremendous amount of light because it was not, the film stock at that time was not like as sensitive as it is today. So you had these incredible arc lights I'm sure you've seen history of classic cinema where out, you know, in, in location, you see these giant arc lights that had to light up the sets because the film was not as sensitive as it became over the years. So you have, you have a lot of light and also to expose it, each frame of film had to be exposed for a full minute to get the full exposure. Every frame was a full minute for red a full minute for green. Oh my goodness! And a full minute for blue. How could
0: how could he go from drawing frame by frame animation be bored with that, and then go to go <laughs> to this process that he wanted to do? I know.
1: I wonder. I mean, he thought that was bored. I mean, this is outrageous. Three minutes to do a single. Three minutes to do a single frame of film, and then you have to replace it every frame. Yeah. And that doesn't include the building of the puppets, the construction of it, the concept of it. The, uh, the special effects involved, the the editing, the music, the set construction, the the marketing. I mean, it's mind-boggling.
0: I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how you said he only produced one every six to eight months and it cost almost $500,000. I can't imagine a single studio picking that kind of job up now saying we're going to produce 20 <laughs> minutes of... 20 minutes of film a year (laughs) they must have been shown on repeat i guess everywhere so so i'm wondering maybe what happened to to puppet tunes you know they they kind of fizzled out after a while so what what's the story with that
1: well i think you 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 touched on it i mean (laughs) it just cost too much it was it was the economics (laughs) and i think the economics just didn't uh, allow for it It became cost prohibitive uh for obvious reasons everything we've described um over the years the puppets he started to make less puppets. Uh, they weren't quite as um, as extreme, and it, it kind of moved. He got more economical as he went through time. He had to. Uh, Tubby the Tuba was one of the later ones, which is still a fantastic. That's
0: puppet that's me. one of my favorite uh, cartoons is um, all time from when I was a kid. I still have that his song playing in my head occasionally every once in a while.
1: It really is a it's a remarkably wonderful subject. I knew Paul Tripp who wrote the lyrics. I didn't know George Kleisinger, who wrote the music. He has passed away, but Paul was still alive when I did the Puppetune movie. He was the sweetest, most wonderful guy in the world. He wrote the whole, uh, the, wrote the whole story and lyrics for Tubby. And he, of course, let me use it. And uh, he said, if it wasn't for Tubby, I mean, he said George Powell gave him his big break in his life. and. Uh, and of course, that story repeats over and over again, which we can elaborate, is how many people were influenced, were worked for George, or led to other careers because of the things that Powell did. But yeah. you mentioned, going back to the uh, stopping of the puppet tunes, um, George, I think George wanted to do features. Even back in the 1940s, uh, George always wanted to make feature films. Uh, he, you could see it in the movies he was doing. The, the storytelling, he was a narrative guy. And he knew that. So he was developing a uh, a feature film called Tom Thumb, back in the 1940s. And he had elaborate, he had storyboards he did for it. I had copies of the storyboards. Uh, Duke, uh, let me uh, look at. And I filmed some of them for the documentary I made a few years ago uh, called The Fantasy Film Worlds of George Powell. Uh, and he tried to sell it, but he, he had Peggy Lee involved. He had a lot of people working on it at the time that later ended up doing the feature film, but it was a live action film with Russ Tamblin. But he started out doing it as an anim- uh, a fully uh, all animated puppet tune, Tom Thumb. Oh my gosh. Uh, so when the time came that obviously the economics weren't there, George had the expression he said he wanted to take off his short pants. And put on his long pants features, so he he kind of made a way of transitioning from the from the short to the feature, and then of course uh, history was made when George decided to go from cartoons, puppetoons, to features. And what happened to George? He became the father of the modern science fiction and fantasy film, and actually created the industry we have. Today is the most famous and the most well loved is science fiction and fantasy. And what did George do? He made the War of the Worlds, the Time Machine, Destination Moon, When Worlds Collide. He basically changed the whole course of the movie industry. Uh, Starting out with little puppetoons and animation, he he went to future worlds, very much like Walt Disney did with audio animatronics. He he created a whole new industry, and that's that's part of the epic story of george Powell
0: yeah, and a lot of special effects in those movies are go directly back to stop motion, so I'm sure he he had a play in special effects at the time too so uh, that was an incredible kind of almost history history lesson of of where kind of stop motion came from and it's i mean it's it's not a very popularized one i i I haven't really heard the whole thing before talking to you, so I, I'm very appreciative that we We've met. I'm wondering, you know, you, you've you mentioned that you had direct connections with a lot of these people, and and I'm wondering where your story comes into play through all this. How did how did you meet George Powell, and all that happen?
1: Well, for me, it was for my my connection is the same as as millions of others, really. I was a fan. Um, I grew up uh, in the 1950s. I was in I, I was I lived in Miami, and. Uh, It was in 1959, uh, even before, but I'll start with what the most important was. I think it was 1959, 1960, The Time Machine came out. And for me, The Time Machine was um, Uh, life-changing. It was done in such a beautiful, subtle, this is the original now.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, It was done in such a beautiful way. It had a subtlety to it uh that just stood out when you saw it as a kid as i did of nine years old uh it's it's it struck you and it did for so many people uh but it also but so did war so did when worlds collide and so did war of the worlds for those people that were eight and nine years old when they grew up he, he appealed to a young mind george appealed to a young mind so that's where it started for me and I followed George's uh, movies. I saw them all during that period when I was growing up and I never dreamed that I would actually end up meeting George. Um, I was doing a feature film. I was developing a feature in uh, 1978, 79. It was a sort of a Ray Harryhausen monster stop motion animation um, movie. Is this on your own? uh, Excuse me?
0: Was this on your own? You you just. Started, I was like,
1: doing it on my own. I was okay. developing it. I had storyboards done by uh, the same people that worked on Alien. Uh, Ron Cobb, who uh, he did original designs for me. I had input from Dan O'Bannon, who was a friend who who wrote Alien.
0: How did you get these connections? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was in Hollywood. I was there, and you know that when you're living there, you sometimes you make connections, or people say, you know, you should talk to this person or that person. Dan O'Bannon was really a, a door opener for me. Dan, um, Dan said, you know, he loved the idea of my movie. And Dan said, you know, you really should talk to George Powell uh, because George uh, and uh, and Dan had already worked with John Carpenter on dark star. And uh, it was, it was a lucky break. And, and I became very close to Dan. And uh, so I ended up uh, being introduced to George and, uh, I met him at his house in uh, Beverly Hills, and I brought the project to him and I showed it to him and of course uh that was a day I'll never forget um, you know, I was sitting in his living room and um right on his coffee table was the uh, Gail Hickman book on G- George Powell that had come out and War of the Worlds is right there, and I'm thinking to myself, my god i'm in the I'm here in this living room with this guy, and I see the Academy Awards on the wall, and you know he's got the Academy Awards, and he's got the uh, he's got puppetoons in different places. I didn't know every bit of history at that point, but it was a lot for me. It was it was over overkill really, and I was just sitting there. And then he, and then he comes in, and George was um, he was the sweetest man you've ever met. He was so uh, charming. He had a he had this wonderful Hungarian charm. He had a wonderful sense of humor. He was very disarmed, disarmed you right away with his just his his personality and his his charming nature and there's no way that you couldn't that you wouldn't love this man. He he just had that quality about him where you 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 fell in love with him. It was just it was just pure it was like magnetism, at least for me.
0: Well, he invited and, you to his living room without without knowing you were seeing your film or anything. That's awesome. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was uh, it was such serendipity, and then I stayed in touch with him for the better part of a year. He only lived another year or so, Hmm. and um, he passed away uh, January nineteen eighty, approximately. I think it was that time my father died the same, uh, just about the same time as as he died. Yeah. So it wasn't a great time for me. It was like my father, and then it was George Powell. And uh, I, because I had been in touch with him, and uh, also was in touch with Mrs. Powell uh, quite a bit. I talked, I called her, I called her, and I said, I uh, uh, introduced, I mean, we introduced. We talked. I said we really should do something for George. We should really do some sort of a tribute to him. And that was the beginning of the journey that ch- changed my life. Yeah, is you know by coming up with the idea of, you know, we really should do something. It wasn't three, three years, three or four years later that I made the fantasy film worlds of George Pal, which uh, is really the greater, greater of the projects that covers his entire life. Everyone he knew that was alive, every star that George worked with, uh, Heston, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee. Ray Harryhausen has 30 pipe, 30 or more people in it from all the people he worked with in his life uh that 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 was the most important project for me in my in my life wow. uh, at that time and um and then uh while I was with Mrs. Powell during that period I was going through a lot of the artifacts that she had in the house you know she let me she gave me free reign of everything she was uh, I have to say if it wasn't for Joka that was her Hungarian first name stands for Elizabeth. Wasn't for Joka, nothing of this would have been possible. She, she, she really opened the doors for me in Hollywood. I really, I I have to frankly say
0: that's quite incredible. And they sound, they sound like a super, a really great couple to kind of invite you in and and allow you to do this. I'm wondering, can you take me back? What did he think of your film in the living room?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, he, he liked it. He liked it very much. He uh, he was impressed by the um, the uh, the ambitiousness of what I was trying to do. Uh, probably from his perspective, he knew how difficult it was going to be for me to do it. I, I ended up not being able to make it. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't quite get all the financing together. Uh, I had Dave Allen. Dave Allen was going to do the animation, who always passed away. Um, uh, he did a film... He, they're working on a, actually a revival of one of his films called Primeval. Uh, I uh, I think George liked it very much. Uh, he it wasn't him. It wasn't for George ultimately. Um, he was a original thinker, and he liked to do things that no one had done before, and uh, he liked to do the one. And he was often asked, you know, why don't you do uh, Star Wars? Why don't you do uh, Close Encounters? Why don't you, you know, they would, at that time, those were the big films that were coming out. And, but George said that's already been made. See, from his point of view, Star Wars is made. Yeah. You're not going to do another Star Wars or a repeat of it. You're going to, George, George came up with his own original ideas. No one had done those films before in his life. They had never, no one had made those types of films when George did them. He invented those ideas and he was a, he was an inventor of ideas or original ideas. We don't have that today. There's very few people that can be that, that you can say is an original thinker who's an Einstein or a Beethoven. George was like an Einstein, a Beethoven. He was an original thinker with original ideas that no one had ever done before. So I can understand that. He wouldn't want to do something that was sort of like something else, see. Okay. Um, and his movies were like that. I mean, when Destination Moon was made in 1950, not only was it the first technicolor science fiction movie, uh, no one had ever made a space film before. George was the first person to ever make a movie about going into space in 1950. And it was a story about man going to the moon 25 years before we ever landed on the moon. And in the movie, it's very reminiscent of actually Neil Armstrong's uh, take possession of the pla- of the moon for all mankind. Well, it's that, those, that exact line is in destination moon. So you know, Neil Armstrong saw it yeah. comes from destination moon. He created that idea of going to the moon and landing there and coming back. Uh, so his movies were not just movies, they were visionary movies. They were movies of the future. He was a George was a futurist, and uh, Gene Roddenberry, who was also a friend, who made created Star Trek. He remarked about that. They were uh, George and Gene were very close friends, and uh, uh, George was a, was a futurist, and just like Gene was with Star Trek, and uh, and so uh, George. Uh, George's puppetoons, going back to them, represent a landmark in terms of their existence and what they are and what they represent in the history of cinema and how they influenced everything that followed. And each thing that George did influenced the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Uh, it was like a ripple effect everything he did was, had great influence in the industry. So I have great reverence for George Powell because of this. Yeah,
0: so maybe let's, let's go on that note. Um, so you compiled the Puppetoons first volume already, and now you're doing the second volume. Can, do you wanna kind of explain what led to that after doing your first documentary on George Powell, why you're compiling all his films together and you know, unearthing this footage that hasn't been seen in almost 100 years for the first time? <laughs>
1: When I made the fantasy film worlds, I was uh, I was in Mrs. Powell's living room, and I mentioned that she had a lot of different uh, artifacts and things I was going through. And in the closet there was a little box with some sixteen millimeter films in them. And I said, Well, what's that? She said, I don't know. And so uh, I said, Why don't we look at them? So she had a projector, she had an old Bell and Howell 16 millimeter projector. And me being one of those crazy guys. I used to project films on 16 millimeter in my, in my living room. I used to do it for my friends. So I knew how to use the damn thing. Who knew how to thread a 16 millimeter projector. So I took the films out and I put one of them on and it turned out to be Tubby the Tuba. Huh. And it was a 16 millimeter color print of Tubby the Tuba. I'd never seen it in color before. I'd only remember seeing it in black and white when I was growing up. And there I'm watching it for the first time in color in 16 millimeter, and I was like, my jaw was dropping, just like for you, Terry. It was like, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And I said to Joka, I said, oh, come on. I mean, we've got to preserve these things. I mean, we've got to do something. And that was the beginning of the Puppetoon movie. So it was the kind of same conversation doing the documentary. I said, I, she said, why do you want to do the Puppetoons? I said, they've been done. Nobody wants to see them anymore. Joka's telling me this. And I said, no, I think people would be very interested to see these things. They, they wouldn't believe it. So, so she, I, uh, she-
0: Sorry, yeah. I just want to say the, the Tubby the Tuba that I remember, it is, it is in color. It's, it's like he's gold and there's like blue backgrounds and stuff. Does that mean they colored
1: that after the fact for production? No, it was, the, shown, it was shown in black and white on television. Uh, the only way that people saw Tubby the Tuba was on television. It was syndicated, gotcha. and in syndication, we only had black and white televisions. So we we all saw it as kids in black and white. We never saw none of the puppetoons were seen in color. They were all seen in black and white, and they, and and the prints weren't even that very good, frankly. So uh, so then the puppetoon movie was born was born. And uh, that was a big process. I had an enormous amount of help from the industry. Everyone in the industry came in and helped me, from Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante and everyone you can think of who loved George Powell helped me with the Puppetoon movie. Joe uh, uh, Clokey, who created Gumby, who told me if it wasn't for the Puppetoons, he never would have created Gumby. it just went on and on and on. And so that became a big, that was back in 1987. That's
0: there we go. Ago. I was wondering uh, if I had seen some, I, I, the film from the Puppet Tunes itself then.
1: That's where you saw it. You saw it from my revival.
0: Because that's revival. before, I was born in 88. So I, I was uh-huh. already up before I was born.
1: <laughs> well, they. I mean, I, I've i had this, this is Terry, this has come up before, where, where, uh, where uh, young uh, people and students have come to me and that's that's where they first saw the puppetoons was the puppetoon movie. Yeah. And that was the intent. The intent was to reintroduce the puppetoons to a new audience. In 1987 would have been uh, still 40 30 40 years 50 years from when they were made. Now it's 100 years. So uh, that was a big deal. That was really a big deal. So now the question you asked me is the real Sixty-five thousand dollar, sixty-four thousand dollar question. Which is why why did it take so long? <laughs> and uh, it took so long because uh, a lot of these films were. Uh, first of all, I didn't. They weren't. No one even knew they existed. A lot of the films that I was able to do now have just sort of turned up in the past decade or more. Some of these films started turning up in Europe, uh, yeah. quite remarkably, and I started to discover a few of them. As soon as I heard that, I said, now we gotta do something.
0: So what, some some studio, some archive, library archive has a copy of some film and they somehow get in touch with you because-
1: No, no, it no, it worked the other way. I, I <laughs> happened to make a phone call. It. I made a phone call to uh, one of the archives and I said, you know, I really would like to see if I can get some of these films. You know, I've heard about them and then, and that's sort of when it happened. Then suddenly the films suddenly, uh, existed. And then I led me from one source to another source to another source. And then that's how I started putting it together. You know, the the biggest hurdle was the Paramount films. Uh, Paramount had lost the rights to the puppetoons back in the 19, uh, late fifties when after syndication, they were sold to company to company and they sat in one company's vault for decades. And I tried to get them from that company. I, I even talked to Mrs. Powell about can't we can't we get those released so we could show a lot of these. And they they didn't want to. They weren't interested. So it wasn't until recently, only within the past few years, huh. that Paramount got the puppetoons back through a library deal, and they bought those. That whole library of films ended up going back to Paramount where they originally were made. And I've been talking to Paramount for the, a number of years, and I said I would really like access to those to be able to do it, and lo and behold, miraculously, the chairman of Paramount, who I met or w- was introduced to through a mutual friend at Turner Classic Movies, because I had done a, um, a guest hosting there, uh, G- uh, Gianopolis let me do it. So it was only in the past two years or less that paramount films could even be seen the ones that i'm now showing they were all in vaults
0: what a what a crazy turn of events like stuff that's almost 100 years old well not i'm more like 50 60 years old (laughs) gets tossed around so much and then comes back full circle so this is basically is this your full-time job right now just trying to figure figure this all out
1: (laughs) it it pretty much is i mean i try to do i have other films i'm doing a, a remake well, you can't see it now, the time machine the re- yeah. i did a remake in two thousand two, of course you know yeah yeah, uh, yeah with uh dreamworks
0: yeah we we didn't hit on we didn't hit on your your career journey. do you want to kind of just give some highlights of what you've done I guess you're doing that right now <laughs>
1: uh well uh I went from doing uh the George Powell tribute films to wanting to do a remake of the time machine, and I had the rights from uh, mrs. Powell, and I basically was able to uh get a remake made with Warner Brothers and uh, DreamWorks. That was in 2002. That became a, a pretty, uh, pretty much of a, it's become a bit of a cult film now. Uh, it had uh, uh, Guy Pearce and Jeremy Irons, had a wonderful score by Claus Badelt. And now most recently I've been, uh, uh, also we're also going to do another time machine. Andy Muschietti, who directed It, is gonna be the director. And so I'm working on a, another, um, another machination, yeah. uh, basically. And um, the there some other projects I'm working on to try to get going, other feature films, other ideas. But right, my, my labor of love has really been the Puppetoon 2 and now Puppetoon 3. And that's basically, I'm very happy to say that Puppetoon 2 is, is gonna be released in December and I'm doing pre-ordering now. It's uh, puppatoon.net, Puppetoon.net. You can go there and you can pre-order the film now and it'll be ready in December.
0: Nice, Can can you give me some kind of interesting tidbits or highlights from what we might see that hasn't been seen since it was originally seen back in the
1: day? Oh my. Like was, A lot. was there
0: anything that stood out to you? Like any really neat shots or complicated? Oh my
1: God! It's 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 <laughs> so much. Up. I don't even know where to begin. Oh, um, no! Uh, there's so much. I'd say that um, one of the films uh, that I discovered that uh, had never been seen before that I was aware of was *Alibaba and the Forty Thieves* that George did in 1934. I think it was 34 or 35, and uh, George was trying to make a series of Arabian Nights films when he was still in Europe, and Alibaba was the first one. It was uh, released in France, hmm. and it's a 10-minute uh, Alibaba in, in all stop-motion animation, and it's really quite extraordinary stop-motion animation. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling when you see it uh, and you realize how much went into that film. So that's extraordinary. And a lot of the early European films are on there that haven't been seen. Most people have never seen them. And the Paramount films, of course, we have Jim Dandy, Punch and Judy, uh, all with the original titles, beginning and end, of some of these gorgeous Technicolor uh, Paramount uh, puppet tunes that when you watch them, you, can't, you think they were made yesterday. They're so beautiful. And they're so gorgeous looking. The colors and the style are striking uh, way better than what you saw in the Puppetoon movie that you saw. Yeah. The restoration now is years more advanced and the, the clarity and the color is, is incomparable when you see it. Right. Nice. So you'll be really impressed when you see it and all the students of animation will be taking copious notes believe me on every short when they watch it they'll be taking copious notes on what how it, it'll be a revelation for all animation uh, aficionados and students anyone who's interested in animation and when they see the puppetoons it will be like we re- being reborn for the first time
0: oh wow <laughs> that's that's quite it's that sounds very exciting i mean i'm excited to see it so uh you know we've we've talked about you know, the history of puppetoons, George Powell, your involvement with that, and then now the Puppet Tunes. Is there anything else you wanted to share?
1: No, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my only, uh, I'm happy to be doing this now. Yeah. I'm happy to be doing it at a time when we all are uh, much closer together than we ever were before because of the pandemic and because of the, the fact that we're able to have these wonderful, uh, very intimate interactions now with one another uh this this is a time when something like the puppet tunes, which is nothing but pure joy you know it it they to me uh they uh they represent just pure joy that's all they are there's yeah. no there's nothing topical about it there's nothing uh you know they just represent wonderness and uh and and wonder and um uh, boyhood boyhood excitement and uh, beauty and, and color. And now, while we're, we're so intimate, doing all of this ba- stuff together, this is the perfect time. I think the world needs the puppetoons. Yeah. To go back to that period and to re-experience what those audiences saw in 1940. And as and, and I said, when a puppetoon came on a movie screen, the audience applauded. When, I, when a puppetoon came on, the audience just applauded. I, I had stories from parents, parents of parents that have told me it was so, ex- so extraordinary at, uh, that the audience was so excited to see something like that. And I guess you're going to get a chance to relive that now. Uh, in, 20, in 2020, we get to see what audiences experienced in 1940. It's really amazing.
0: Nice. I was, I was going to say, uh, is, if somebody's listening to this for the first time and just finding out about this, and maybe they're a fan of stop motion, what is the biggest takeaway that you hope they get from our chat? But I, I think you just, you just said it right there. So for this pre-order, what you're talking about, is, our, is this uh, a physical DVD copy? Is it an online access? Like what, what exactly is the pre-order?
1: No, it's a physical, a phys- I, well, I want to do a physical uh, product. We're not, uh, we're not live on television now, but it's a physical Blu-ray. Uh, it looks like this, except it's, it's the Puppetoon volume two. Gotcha. And, and you know, and uh, that was important to me. I wanted people to have it in their hands. They could play it on a player. I don't know if people have players. Uh, people want to see menus. Yeah, I'm people just checking that stuff. Actually...
0: I don't even have a CD player. And you have a
1: you have to get a burner, you know, but thing about a blu-ray is you get a booklet there's, yeah. a, there's like a three in this there's a six page booklet it's going to look similar okay. to this that tells you all about the puppetoons with pictures and descriptions and the new version i i have i haven't um uh, i have copies but it's not published yet that people get to have in their hand and they can actually hold it and they the thing about it, it's like going to uh I like, used to go to a library and used to have something that's sort of like a treasure. Yeah. This is like a treasure. It's like something that every animator in the world is going to want to have sitting on their shelf so they can just pull it off and open it up and be, and be uh, inspired and, and startled. And, uh, and every one of them will say, you know, uh, that was an influence in my life. And that's what will happen. Everyone who sees it will say, "George Powell, he um, he gave me a little something," and uh, and and I think that's the benefit of the whole thing. It's 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 an it's a, it's an education. It really is. It's a it's a revelation.
0: Gotcha. And and you can the pre-orders on Puppetoons.net if you're listening. Um, well, it, as we wrap it up, is there any is there anything else you wanted to any final notes you wanted to end on?
1: No, I'm hoping we'll talk again. I hope that uh, as this come as this comes out, maybe we'll have a, maybe we can do more Q and I'd like to see how your audience. Yeah. I think it's going to be very exciting to have your audience and animation audiences. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. The reviews. And by the way, you can post reviews on the page that you buy this from. I can't wait to see what people have to say. Uh, It's going to be so amazingly joyful to listen to everyone from all over the world comment and 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 respond to these things and how much and you and you should you should follow that yourself and you'll see the stories you will start to see will amaze you. Not just the people that don't know George Powell, but the people that do know George Powell and and all the stories that they have in their lives and they they relate every all everything I said. I'm no different than they are. I'm a fan just like they are. They're going to say the same things, and they're going to say, I was over here, and I was there, and I remember that, and I remember this, and it meant something to me here and there, and whatever. I have a guy who emailed me just the other day. He said, I was a kid when I was growing up. My 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 brother and I used to, we used to act out the characters of the puppetoons. He played one of them, and I played the other one. I mean, it, these stories come from, from nowhere, but they're you're going to hear a, one, a lot of wonderful stuff. So that's, that's, I'm hoping we'll we'll talk again, maybe in a few months or whatever. And uh, we'll have more to talk about.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see, uh, you know, part of running this podcast is I've learned how connected the animation community is. And somebody, you know, emails me and says, oh, hey, you know, I worked with this person or I remember that. So yeah, I'm excited to see all the stories and reviews and what comes out of this. So
1: yeah, I am excited.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the chat, Arnie. It's been a real pleasure to have you.
1: It's been great, Terry. I'm looking forward to, uh, to doing more with you and uh, good luck with your, the success you're having with this podcast. I think it's just great.
0: Oh, well, thank, thank you so much. And if you're listening and you, I, I definitely think you should check out the Puppet tunes. If you haven't already, just Google that and watch some videos on YouTube and go to the website, which is Puppetoons.net. And pre-order a copy if you're interested and you still have a DVD player. You can uh, have a
1: Blu-ray. It's a Blu-ray and a DVD. So you can have two. I made both. So I made a DVD for those that don't have a Blu-ray. I can't imagine that you don't have one. But you should get the Blu-ray. They're very inexpensive. And you can see it in high definition. Ah. But you also have a DVD.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, I'll include, I'll include links to those in the description of the chat. So please check them out. And that's all for now. So thanks so much for listening. Okay. Bye.